0: We are outdoor ladies who hunt, fish, camp, and more, all while working in conservation. I am Julia Ploogie with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission.
1: And I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources.
0: And I am Tana Wagner with the
2: Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. And we want to see you outdoors.
1: Hey y'all welcome back to she goes outdoors happy spring the robins have have finally entered iowa so i know that that maybe spring is around the corner um that our office is i don't know about y'all but our office is moving a mile a minute right now um we are still a little bit on the high after our uh natural national archery in the schools tournament we had about two thousand archers um it was insane just the the skill and the the poise and just the parents, the kids, it it was just awesome. So, um, excited it's over, excited to have hosted it and survived it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's spring and we are, we are rolling. Tiana, what's going on in, uh, in Kansas? Oh man, Rachel, a lot of the same, you know, I I
2: always, one of the signs of spring is seeing that purple henbit pop up and I noticed a big healthy looking patch of purple on my way down, um, down to the podcast room today so that was exciting to see but man we are like you said going a mile a minute um we just wrapped up, let's see, a couple weeks ago now, I think our border wars archery tournament. Um, from there, we moved right into our 50 year celebration of hunter education in Kansas. So we had a hunter education um, instructor academy where we invited a lot of our hunter education instructors out um, we had presentations helpful to them and their students that we hope they take with them and apply to the classrooms. And we also celebrated some of those foundational instructors that have been around since before hunter education was even hunter education. Um, and really have helped build the program throughout the years so it was wonderful to recognize those folks and um, just a busy busy weekend there we're also gearing up for our national archery in the schools tournament Um, that'll be over at the hutch fairgrounds and i have to do a little plug because on the flatlander podcast through kdwp we recently interviewed outdoor skills and recruitment coordinator Lindsay Rhine about the nasp program and about our upcoming state shoot so if you want to go check out that episode and learn a little bit more about nasp and how to get that program going in your schools um, feel free to go check out the kdwp and kansas wildlife federation flatlander podcast julia what's it like in your neck of the woods
0: <laughs> probably just as busy as you ladies are in kansas and iowa we also actually, as we are recording this, you might hear some banging and lots of voices in the background and packing and throwing the boxes because they physically are packing the trailers right now for uh, Nebraska's National Archery in the Schools program tournament that is this coming weekend. So, you know, once this launches and heads out the door, our, co- our workshop or excuse me, Our tournament will be over and I'll be excited to report the numbers after that. But meantime, bear with the background noise as they are actually packing for the trailer. So excited to see the faces. And you know, these these kids elementary through high school walking in proudly with their Genesis bows and a long line of targets that are perfectly squared in line and operated by Oh, so many volunteers. It's just, it's always a phenomenal weekend and empowering both for the adults that are there watching and, and the youth that are participating. So um, good times. We're busy preparing for our spring events, whether it's adult outreach, hunting and shooting programs, or um, our youth programs with the outdoor discovery programs. It just, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy, but it's a
1: good crazy, right? <laughs> tis, tis the reminder that, that things are coming back and that I guess that's spring in, in general, but at least here the snow is starting to melt. I know maybe up north where our guest is, it's still on the ground, but um, <laughs> but it's still here. It is starting to melt and and this time of year always brings me back to my childhood. Uh, many of the listeners know i grew up in new england and probably my favorite thing ever was going to a sugar shack um they there's like 400 different names that was our regional name um the sugar house but at the end of the day it's pancakes and maple syrup and i'm talking real maple syrup no aunt jemima no mrs buttersworth the real deal and I don't know about anybody else but in my household there's kind there's like one contentious point one continuous argument and it is over the real maple syrup and that fake stuff and and there is in my eyes there is no there there is no line like it, there's a one winner and that's it clearly that's my soapbox for the day but <laughs> Um, yeah, anyway, that, that is, that is the sword I'm going to die on today. And, um, so I want to welcome to our podcast, Katie Chapman. Um, Katie, will you take a minute, introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the main topic of the day.
3: Absolutely. Well, I, I have to completely and wholeheartedly agree with your soapbox and I look forward to joining you on that soapbox today because it is a foundational part of my character and what I live for these days. So, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It is such an honor to join you ladies here. Uh, Have a seat at the table with outdoor and environmental education, recreation, sportsmanship, um, all incredibly invaluable. I guess my introduction is that I am the Director of Environmental Education at Shatek Lutheran Ministries, which is a small Lutheran camp here in southwest Minnesota. We are located on 27 acres of ground on an island. Lake Chatek is a glacial lake that uh, hosts not just one island, the one that my camp is on, but four. And one of the um, really cool things about our island in particular is that we have a lot of maple trees and we'll be getting into that today. I have a family, I'm a mom to two kids. Uh, My husband is in agriculture, my kids are 12 and eight. Perfect age for helping us make maple syrup. And um, I have my, my bachelor's of science in environmental science from Southwest Minnesota State University in Marshall, Minnesota my master's in outdoor and environmental education from Alaska Pacific University in Anchorage and I've just been so blessed with a rich career of really all kinds of outdoor and environmental interpretation and education opportunities ranging from being a national park ranger in the Apostle Islands National Lakeshore to being able to do my practicum for my graduate work at the West Coast of Alaska Tsunami Warning Center, and doing coastal tsunami hazard awareness and education, which we clearly have so much of here in Minnesota, right? Like, uh,
0: <laughs> looks good on the resume, no matter what.
3: Looks <laughs> fabulous. Yeah, you did what? I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's been a long road. I've uh, you know to to be where I am. It's been one that's just been full of passionate education on my part. I think the biggest thing for me is just this background of, you know, if my side part doesn't tell you, I am a 90s kid through and through. We got kicked out the door at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning after loading up on a bowl of sugar smacks and we weren't allowed back in till the yard lights came on. Right. Like. We we were the last ch- children in the woods. I love that book by Richard Louvre, um but also it makes me so sad because I feel like my generation was the group that played ghosts in the graveyard and kick the can and capture the flag and all those great games and went on hikes and adventures and you, we didn't we weren't seen for hours. Um so I'm really trying with our educational programming uh, for all ages from the very young to the very old, trying to reinstate that sense of discovery and and wonder and just this incredulous nature of what the outdoors can bring. And I um, just, I love that aspect of it. So now that I'm in my 11th year of uh, being the director of environmental ed at camp, I just have this great opportunity to keep pushing that forward.
2: Oh my gosh, Katie, your background makes me want to be, you know, those little like cat backpacks that have the bubble globe on the front so the cats can look out. Listen, I want one for me and I want you to wear me around and I want to go on adventures with you because you are so cool. You have such a unique background.
3: Thank you. (laughs) I just never said no. You know, like you just, I never got, was scared of asking for what I wanted and Golly, if I just had one lesson to impart to any college kid or any like any student or any person out there that's wondering, should I, could I? would I? Just ask, just do it. Just get people in your back pocket that have the resources that will help you. I never said no and I never got tired of asking and it got me into some pretty cool positions. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's great advice. And then I have to ask too, Katie, a lot of the times when we speak with our guests, we talk about their unique pathways into the outdoors, but so often they're grounded in this childhood of like flipping over stones or staying out in the woods till dark, like you said. Um, talk to us about what your introduction to the outdoors was like. Was that like a big, big family component for you all? And did you always know that you wanted to go into this field?
3: 100%. I, you nailed it, really. I just... We, I grew up in a very outdoorsy family. My parents took us to Lake Lakeshatek State Park often just to do little walks around uh, what's called Loon Island. Um, we did a lot of bike rides. My brother and I spent most of our time in the outdoors. I grew up on a small hobby farm. And so really, it was just this mindset of this is what we do. And it never occurred to me that there were people out there who not only didn't choose to. But didn't have the choice to, if that makes sense. And so when I figured that out, that some people didn't know how to recreate um, with with caution or recreate um, with with a sense of wonder in the outdoors, how to do it, why we do it, um, it became kind of my life mission. And so yeah, definitely knew from an early age I wanted to be in some facet of environmental education. Um, when I went to college, I, I knew that I wanted to teach in some capacity. I'm just thinking about how, um, you know, little kids just bend down and, and look at the cutest little things. I, I, I will never get tired of that. I'll never get tired of the light bulbs. I'll never get tired of the, hey, what's this? Um, it just, it makes my heart sing to be able to provide those opportunities. And it has for a long time. So definitely spent a lot of time in the outdoors scouts um doing different things camping hiking fishing swimming kayaking canoeing and then that just continued all through my career of deciding i wanted to get paid to do it
0: how fun to be paid to do that right oh my gosh like this is the ideal job that i so many would just love to have it just i bet our listeners are like Wow. I just, they're, they they have this in their mind of how exciting this is, this opportunity leading to that. I want to learn more about your position as a director of environmental education at, uh, She-Tech, right? Shaytech. Lutheran
3: She-Tech, it means Pelican in Ojibwe. Oh
0: my gosh. Goodness gracious. Um, can you give our listeners a bit of background? Where is it located? Uh, and just like what opportunities exist?
3: Sure. So like I um, had mentioned briefly, we're in southwest Minnesota. We're about 25 miles uh, south of Marshall, 10 miles north of Slayton on Lake Shitek. We're a small Lutheran camp that was established in 1947. Originally, our camp was a WPA camp. And once that was disbanded after World War II broke out, it sat vacant for a few years until the Lutheran Church swept it up and made it into the camp that it is today. So I operate under the umbrella of the 501c3 nonprofit, which is Shatech Lutheran Ministries. And I work into developing that programming for environmental education. And every day is different. I think um, the coolest thing about it is that it's relatively... New. We've been uh, having environmental-led programming since the early 90s. And in years past, the directors that have been working in that position at camp have largely been very part-time. And now, um, looking at the way that I do programming out there full-time now, uh, the opportunities to have field trips and public and private programmings, wild birthday parties, you name it. Well, it just it's it's grown so much in the last ten years since I took the reins, and so what we offer are full um, year-round programs. Like I said, public, private schools, four H groups, scout groups, any organization, senior citizen centers. I teach for SMSU's Gold College Program. Um, we offer a wide range of experiential and environmental outdoor recreation and nature-based. Um, and educational activities that focus on adventure, discovery, and exploration. And our mission is to connect people to nature in a way that inspires stewardship. So once I learn about something, I come to care for it. And then I'm able to um, discern my role a little bit more in what it means to take care of the earth. Right. So we always hope that by providing that that education on why the prairie is important, why this bug is important, why this species is important. We hope to instill a little bit of that stewardship ethic, finding people's place by stewardship so that um, that's always been kind of the focus of the program and um, really moving into that by providing lots of opportunities for people to come out to camp and learn has just been tremendous
1: that stewardship piece is is such an important piece we we talk about it a lot especially with within the ties of conservation but on all aspects and and you put it so eloquently if 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 you don't understand it how do you care for it and and without that connection um you don't care for something if you don't understand how it works so that's that's really impressive and it's so fun to hear and and listen to people that are so passionate about it and, and unfortunately that that environmental education piece, so many camps are going away from that and, and camps in general, a lot of them are closing and, and getting smaller. So it's, it's nice to hear a success story where one's growing and and getting more into the community and, and growing that outreach. So, so kudos to you and uh, it's, it's fun to hear.
3: Yeah, we, uh, we're 100% donor funded. Uh, because of our unique nature of being a Lutheran camp, uh, we are, we've are we received grants before, but mainly donor and program fees fund what we do. And it's really nice just to know that people truly value what it is we're trying to do at camp, both ministry-wise and uh, through environmental ed. And people show up. We are very blessed to have the support and encouragement that we do in our community. And people just love to hear what we're up to. It's always, it's always fun to relay what we're, what we're doing.
1: Okay. So your Island of maple trees, maple syrup, I've often heard it called liquid gold. Of course, And, and I'm going to say, I'm going to admit beyond understanding that I like pancakes, waffles and syrup. Um, I have a pretty kindergartner's level understanding of, of the whole process of maple syrup. So you find trees, you tap them, you heat it, and you make syrup, right? It's just that easy, right, Katie?
3: Yeah, it's exactly it. In fact, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time today. You nailed it. Um, <laughs> any questions? Really, that's it. Time <laughs> field delivered. We're done here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I wish it was, <laughs> wish it was more than just that. I wish it was just that. Um, it is an incredible process. And at yeah, Rachel, like at the brass tacks of it, yes, it is exactly that. You find the tree, you put a hole in it, you put something over the hole to, to uh, catch the sap that comes out. You boil that down into that rich maple syrup. You put it in a jar and fight over it until the last drop with your family. Like, that's you know at its as a, at its bare minimum that is exactly how maple syruping works and the beauty of it is that there are so there's so much of a gamut of people who make maple syrup that you can either have the absolute least technical ass, like the approach to it and still come out with decently great maple syrup or you can be a commercial producer who has you know product specifications where every bottle has to look and taste exactly the same? Um, you know, you're releasing thousands of gallons of syrup a year depending on your size. And so obviously things have to be a little bit more technical on that end, right? But for us in that middle ground of being a hobby producer, um, someone that I make less than $5,000 a year in revenue, I make less than 40 gallons a year, uh, really it, it, it boils, forgive the pun, but it boils down to <laughs> um, just pure enthusiasm and then willing to learn as you go. And the maple syruping community has been absolutely amazing for that. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it really can be that simple. It just depends on how much syrup you want to make and uh, how you intend to do it
2: i love that maple syruping is is a verb this is new in my vocabulary but i want to go maple syruping
3: yeah you know i think the biggest uh the biggest challenge is that you have to start thinking about it at the point in the year where you have no intention of going outside whatsoever right like you're in the doldrums of winter and you're looking outside at these trees and you're trying to decide if it'll ever thaw as in the case of this winter here in minnesota Or if you are, um, you know, you're going to enjoy a great spring and, and, you know, have trees that are just dumping sap. And so the real work begins in January, where you are pulling out your equipment, you're making plans for getting volunteers in in line, you're lining up field trips for school buses full of kids to come out and hopefully watch you be able to make it, uh, making sure that all your equipment is tuned up and ready to go. And then when it comes time to actually tapping the trees, that... You know, sets in motion a, a process that is only a six to eight week window at the most. If you're lucky, you get a six to eight week window where you are actively drawing sap from the trees and boiling off and making maple syrup. And then once the trees bud out and their leaves are out, you you are done. This the season is over. You wash everything. You put all your buckets and hoses and lines and spiles and boiling pans and evaporators away and you anxiously await the next year already.
0: So I just kind of a question to feed off of that, that short window. Like I feel that's kind of an agriculture thing, right? We have a short window for harvest of any food product. Um, Can you describe kind of like, what is that short? Like, is it just the process of which that tree is only making the maple syrup? Like, is it only making it until it starts budding out and, and what feeds or what causes that? Like the, the light temperature or the light, the amount of light, what kind of um, triggers that tree to start producing maple syrup?
3: Sure. So maple, maple sap and maple trees are um, very much directed by temperature. So when temperatures get above freezing during the day and below freezing at night, there are several things in the maple trees and and honestly every tree, but maples have a higher concentration of sugar in their sap. So that's why we, that's why you don't hear of like oak syrup or ash syrup. Is, they just don't have the, the sugar um, in the sap to warrant boiling it down or the bioavailability within the tree to leak as pro- proliferately as maple trees do. So when it gets above freezing during the day, and below freezing at night, several things are happening. The tree is slowly starting to wake up and become non-dormant, meaning that tissues are starting to thaw, and what it wants to do is it wants to um, bolster maple sap up to the branches to start the process of getting the leaves out, because once the leaves are out, um, it can start doing photosynthesis again, it can start making more sugar, and it can start the process of Um, creating food for itself over the next growing season, right? So when the temperatures are above freezing during the day, below freezing at night, it creates hydraulic pressure inside the tree that forces sap both um, across the tree laterally, but also up and down the tree vertically from the roots to the branches and back down. The sap that we're tapping into isn't necessarily the sap that the tree uses to grow throughout the year. It's sap that has a little extra sugar in it that's been stored um, for extra fuel and antifreeze during the winter to keep the tree from freezing solid. When you tap into that sap, it releases that pressure inside the tree which makes the sap run from the hole you drilled into it, into whatever collection vessel you're using, be it lines that connect, you know, thousands of trees back and forth with hundreds of miles of tubing, or simply for us, we use tubing going into a bucket, a five gallon pail. And so when those temperatures rise, there's little gas bubbles inside the branches that expand and contract, which draws that sap up from the roots and then floods it back down from the branches. So it's this just constant highway of sap moving up and down the tree and then osmotically, laterally across the tree tissue as well. So when you tap into that, then you're releasing, like I said, you're releasing that pressure, you're able to harvest that sap, and the reason that it truncates is simply because the tree heals itself. When the leaves bud, that releases different hormones inside the tree. It um, it triggers, you know, by the time that... Um, it's warm enough for the tree to heal. Bacteria are already starting to grow and cause mats to form inside the holes, which causes um, the tree to seal the holes that you've tapped up. And the tree is in production mode. It is full, full throttle in grow mode at that point. And so any residual sap is basically dumped into the ground and the tree is able to focus on growing and being able to do photosynthesis once again.
0: Wow. Right? That's I'm like in you know, awe. That silence, like, uh
3: So, you know, for for myself, I I am very proud of an outstanding academic collegiate career. There is one class that I failed and one class that I got a C in. The class I failed twice was organic chemistry. Never again in the history of never ever am I taking that class again. And the class I see in was botany. Oh funny. <laughs> Like, if you can't yell for your food, I'm, I'm a good mother. I can't raise plants to save my life. I have everybody else taking care of my camp garden because if you can't verbally scream for what you want, you're not going to get it. <laughs> I, I, I don't read plant minds. I don't understand. And so when I have the task, I got hired in February of 2013 to be the environmental education director at Shatek, The literal next month, I had to teach school buses full of kids that were already scheduled to come out to camp how the process of maple syrup is made, and so I had to do some really fast research. And my husband and I just sat and pored over, um, and you know, like just websites and books and as many educational materials as we could. And still, my, the first field trip that I had. Just, I don't even, I'm not even embarrassed by this anymore. The first field trip I had was a group of third graders getting off a bus. And we walked up to the first tree that I thought was a maple and started to drill into it. And they started looking around and they're like, Mrs. Chapman, what are all these acorns on the ground? around?" (laughs) Um, I don't don't know, man. They, they roll around there. You know, it's windy. They just probably blow. We tapped an oak tree. We did. We tapped an oak tree. <laughs> so not only like do you have to understand how and why the trees release sap that they've stored over the winter in the first place but you also have to be able to identify trees if you're smart you'll do it in the summer when you can actually see their leaves but I've gotten pretty good at doing it in the winter when there's no leaves to be seen obviously um but it's just so it's so multifaceted and that's you know identifying the tree knowing how to tap it knowing how you're going to boil down that syrup every step of the way just has so much information that you have to learn in order to be successful.
2: Katie, I have about 18 billion questions. Um, First of (laughs) which you kind of mentioned a drill and a bucket. Um, Will you go into a little bit more detail about what exactly it means to tap a tree and like what materials you use?
3: Sure. So when you start to see the temperatures going above freezing during the day below freezing at night you can know at that point that sap is starting to move inside the tree and in fact you can use a stethoscope to listen to the trees um i don't want to say heartbeat but you can hear sap swishing inside the tree so when you start to see that happen you'll want to gather some supplies And one of the actual um, cool things, I guess you could say, about COVID was that it really increased the demand for people wanting to do outdoor things. So these supplies are not just this little gated community of hush-hush maple syrup makers. You can buy tapping supplies at Fleet Farm, Running's, Menards, any like farm and home store, really, even Bumguards here in Minnesota has it. Um, and you can go online. There's many, many different uh, places that are very specialized maple syrup stores all the way to Amazon. But the, the main thing of tapping trees is that you're putting a hole in the tree, you're putting in a little spout that directs the flow of the sap coming out, and you're putting something under the spout to catch it. So people run the gamut of ways they like to do that. For us personally at Shatech Lutheran Ministries, what we do is for tapping trees, we use a 5 16 spile and drill bit. And <clears throat> industry standard for a long time was 7-16ths, just under half an inch. But they realized that um, the 5-16ths did less damage inside the tree while allowing about 90% flow rate that the 7 16 had. So you still got almost just as much maple sap coming out, but you did less damage to the tree. And when I say damage to the tree, you know, for us, it would be the equivalent of getting a paper cut, right? You don't, I always say to the kids on field trips, if you get a paper cut, you don't die from it. But if you got many paper cuts, you might be worried about infections, scarring, things like that. Same thing for the trees. So when we're picking trees to tap, we use the equipment that's gonna do the least damage because right now we are not actively replacing, replanting, replenishing our maple trees at Shatek. The trees that we have are the trees that we're tapping. So when we're tapping, we wanna use sustainable practices. So with that being said, we also observe careful guidance as far as how many taps can go in each tree. For trees that are 10 to 12 inches in diameter, it's one tap. For anything bigger than 14 inches, it's two taps. 18 to 20 inches is about three taps. And three taps is all we put in a tree. Research has indicated that the more taps you have, you're not going to get that much more maple maple sap out of the tree. Um, It's the same amount of sap getting forced through more holes, essentially. So you can either have... High pressure coming out of few holes or you can have less pressure coming out of many holes, but the end result is about the same. And when you have less holes in your tree, you have a reduced risk of things like insect infestation, bacterial infection, um, ability for other animals to gnaw at those holes to get that sugary sap, that kind of thing. So when we tap, we use just, it's a tapping bit that's specialized to do the least amount of damage to the tree. And then we use little spiles that are about three inches long that are made of stainless steel that we order online. Very easy. We whack that into the tree and then we connect a piece of BPA-free tubing to the spile and then run that right into a five-gallon bucket. And depending on the tree, we could have one line into a bucket or we could have three. But then that just sits. And when you are when you're in the middle of sapping season, generally speaking, they say a drop per second is a gallon per day. So if you're tapping your trees and you hear this thunk, 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 you'll want to make sure to go back and check that bucket tomorrow because it will be full.
2: And I got I have to ask more questions about the ethics. I have all the questions. I'm so sorry. Can you over harvest? I mean, I know you said that there are sustainability practices in place as far as how many times you tap a tree, but um, can you over harvest from these trees or over tap them like throughout the season?
3: So I, I think the biggest thing would be just putting too many holes in the tree personally. Okay. You, the, the tree will always give the same amount of sap. And once the leaves start to bud, the tree truncates itself and it'll heal itself So when your season is done and wrapped up, you take the metal spiles out of the tree. You do not need to cork it. You do not need to do anything. The tree uses bacteria inside the holes as well as cellulose, extra sap and hormones to heal that scar inside of itself. And so when you're identifying maple trees, one common practice is to look for those belly buttons, right? The holes that have been healed over. It's not the first way I would go about identifying a maple tree because Lord knows I have tapped my fair share of wrong ones. So I wouldn't lead with belly buttons, but (laughs) I would certainly use those as an indicator of, okay, this tree's been tapped 42 times. Then, um, you know, it's probably a safe bet. You also want to make sure that your holes are spread out. So you're not creating a bunch of scar tissue in one spot inside, um, a certain area of the tree. So what we do is we look to see where we've tapped that tree in the past, and we try to keep um, a thumb and a finger away from that hole at any other, at any given time. And so that helps us spread out where that tree is tapped around. We tap at a, um, ABH, which is adult breast height. And so um, when you're going around the tree, that tree's growing up every year, so your holes will start to move up the tree as long as that tree is actively growing healthy, no limbs lost, n- nothing that's affecting that tree's growth in any way. And so then you can kind of just spiral up the tree as it grows. And at some point that tree will be done growing and you have a lot less real estate to work with after a few years, but it's a good management practice.
2: Thanks for the clarification there. Um, I have one more question before Julia and Rachel give me the shepherd's hook. I can see it in their eyes. Um <laughs> As far as maple syrup, what is the difference between like the syrup that you all are producing there at Shatek and what we'd pick up in the store in a Mrs. Butterworth bottle or something like that?
3: Many. So the syrup that we buy in the store as pancake syrup. So Log Cabin, Aunt Jemima, you know, Mrs. butterworths all those brands that we grew up with, know and love. Those are all corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup. Widely accepted as far as you know being completely safe to eat. Many people grew up on them and love them. Um, obviously, a huge part of the corn agricultural industry as far as a product that we can use for farmers to produce corn for, that kind of thing. But they cannot put maple syrup, obviously, because it's not made from the sap of maple trees. So when you go to the store and you're looking at a bottle of log cabin syrup for two ninety nine dollars at Walmart. And then you get the sticker shock of looking at a bottle of pure maple syrup from, you know, whatever company, even great value. Walmart brand makes its own maple syrup. On the ingredient list, you will just see pure maple syrup. Nothing is added as we're boiling down. Nothing is ever added to our maple syrup as far as additives, preservatives, nothing. And the price is the way that it is because there is so much hands-on work involved. Even if you're a commercial producer, there is so much hands-on work that can only ever be achieved by walking through the woods and tapping trees. There's literally no other way to do it. And so because of all the human work that goes into making maple syrup, it is an incredibly precious, precious commodity. It's even worth more per gallon than crude oil because of its seasonal availability and the amount of work, time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears that go into it.
2: Silently panicking because I'm realizing I maybe have never had real maple syrup. So we'll be going to the store after this. Thank you for entertaining all of my questions.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Kind of thinking ahead as far as our listeners that are excited about maple syrup and potentially maybe want to try it themselves. Is there a an environment that, you know, they can grow a maple tree that would be of the same structure that they could do their own maple syruping. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking of the environment that Tana and I are in. Uh, Would a typical maple tree that's in our area produce that same type of syrup that you're tapping into?
3: Absolutely. The only difference is temperatures. So as you go farther south, the season is largely dictated by that freeze thaw. And so, you know, maples have, you know, a decidedly more northern range of living naturally. Planted maples would undergo the exact same process, but what I'm assuming is it would probably go through it faster, meaning that your season would be very limited if, um, I mean, it it just would not be um, directed so much by that freeze-thaw, that pulse of sap. It would just be probably a continuous run. Uh Up here in northern, um, like the northern states, you know, like Rachel had said, you know, her growing up in the northeast all the way over um, across Canada, we do enjoy that that six to eight week longer window where the trees are freezing and thawing and using those temperatures to... um, coordinate when that sap is released. So if people want to make maple syrup, this is something that I I strongly suggest is connect with people who already are first. You will learn so much if you just go find a maple farm and watch it happen. And I have never in my life met some, a group of people so excited to tell you what they're doing as maple sugar maple makers, because it gets awfully long and lonely sitting there boiling off maple syrup because you have to literally boil almost 90% of the water out of it in order for it to be a concentrated sugar product. And that's a long time of sitting there putting logs on the fire or adjusting your pans or whatever. And so one of the best pastimes is just sitting around and talking around the evaporators as you're boiling off this maple syrup. So first and foremost, if anybody was ever interested in pursuing making their own maple syrup, find someone in your area who already is doing it. There are also some really great online communities. I know for myself, we're, um, we belong to several Facebook groups, Minnesota Maple Sugar Maple Makers, um, Maple Syrup Producers. There's the Minnesota Maple Syrup Association all have great information as to what people are doing, when people are tapping, you know, older generations able to throttle back us young bucks and now just hold on a second, it's gonna get cold, you don't wanna put your taps in just yet, like, you know, the voice of reason, so to speak. And then after that, I would say the biggest thing is figuring out how much you want to make and then finding, um, just sourcing the equipment to do it. So if you were just going to tap one tree and maybe make a couple gallons or a couple even quarts of maple syrup, my suggestion would just to be to use one tap and use a turkey fryer to boil it off. Literally as easy as that. You know, if you wanted to get a little bit more technical, you could look up, there's great YouTubes on how to build your own brick evaporators where it's something that's permanently in your yard. You use it every year and maybe you want to throw a few more taps in. Maybe you want to plant a couple more maples. Your return on investment is going to be a little slow. They do have to be about 40 to 50 years old before you can start tapping them for them to get to the size they need to be. But if you've got an established grove of maples, the right temperatures, and a great way to boil off, the world is your oyster. And so you just look for YouTubes and other sources of information that will kind of help direct how much you want to make, and you would just go from there.
0: Okay, I got a quick question. Uh, you can give it in two words or less if you want. What is your favorite food that is not a pancake or waffle to put maple syrup
1: on?
3: Squash. Yum. Squash and venison would be my, I just had that for breakfast this morning, as a matter of fact.
1: <laughs> if you throw a little cinnamon on it too, it's absolutely delicious. Katie, we're we're kind of coming up on time and we're starting to wrap up here, but I did want to just ask you one quick question. Um your maple enterprise, if you will, um, it's it's on the smaller side, but it, it isn't it isn't just a personal thing. You you have an operation. Um, can you just give us a little bit of an insight as to how many trees you trap you you personally or your your group's tap and like how many gallons that makes um, and where are you in the spectrum? Like I, I know you're probably not in like the Canadian, um, you know maple syrup i don't know monopoly but you're also not just making a gallon so so where are you kind of in the spectrum
3: i'm this is one place i'm so happy to be in the middle of the pack i um i love being a hobby producer because we are not beholden to any um commercial standards so to speak we don't grade our syrup it just comes out as it comes out by the batch every year and so Shatek Lutheran Ministries is home to 125 maple trees of five different species. We've got red, sugar, silver, autumn blaze, and Norway maples. Of those 125, about 80 are tappable, and about 60 are accessible during the winter and spring. So at Shatek Lutheran Ministries, we tap about 60 to 65 trees a year. We also tap off-site as well. So we have 10 trees um, that we tap in my town of Slayton, we tap another ten trees in the town where my husband works, which is Leota, and we also enjoy the benefit of people who love to tap their trees, love to harvest sap, but do not want to make syrup. And so they will just come and bring us their sap, which is such a blessing. And they we just give them a bottle of syrup in return. So when I started in two thousand and thirteen, we were my husband is intrinsic to this and I'd be so remiss to not to not actively tell you how how my husband's creativity work ethic drive for success and pure love of the game here has helped me so much in my becoming the maple syrup lady out at Chatech Lutheran ministries um, we started with boiling off in a Dutch oven Dutch oven over a campfire in 2013 and when we made a quart of maple syrup, I cannot tell you how proud we were. It was runny, it was grainy, it was full of trail spice like ash and bits of bark, but dang it, that was our syrup and it was so good and we were so proud of it. But if you had told me that in 10 years, a decade of constantly refining and educating ourselves on the process of making syrup, refining our evaporators, finally ending up on what we have today, which are two custom-made evaporators made out of old fuel barrels, Um, and now we're making 30 to 35 gallons of maple syrup a year that we sell from our property at Chateau Lutheran Ministries, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I never would have guessed in a million years that we'd process over 1400 gallons of sap a year to make 30 to 35 gallons of syrup. Um, You'd never would have been able to tell me we'd have the resource base, that we'd have the fiscal ability, that we'd have the volunteers, coming to help us, that we'd have the community support, that we'd have the educational programming that we have today. It's just grown beyond my wildest dreams. And so I say with pride that we are a small but mighty hobby farm producer. Um, Will we get bigger? I don't know that we have the capacity. I think this is kind of our sweet spot where we are able to both tap and teach, and I don't get burnt out on either. And we're just able to have lots of community events that celebrate the return of spring with something so delicious.
2: Well, Katie, I know you're on a tight schedule today. We so appreciate you jumping on to share your energy and passion with us. And listeners, we challenge you to get out and try your hand at harvesting some maple sap, tapping some trees. Like Katie said, get in touch with those local groups, groups online, um, to see if you can get some of that insider knowledge and uh, try your hand at it. Is there any last minute um, items or thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Katie, before we sign you off?
3: I there's so many things that we could talk about between the science of how it works to the process by which it's made but I would just encourage your listeners she goes outdoors listeners do not be afraid to just try it if you put a spile in a tree and you collect a few gallons of sap you boil it down into what looks like syrup you put it on your pancakes it's delicious congratulations you have achieved what a huge percentage of the population never would try. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to um, think outside the box as far as what your capabilities might be. People get more excited about this stuff than you think. And it's something that's so fun to do and bridges that horrible gap where everything is muddy and not exciting between winter and spring. So get your boots on, get tromping through the snow, tap those trees enjoy some pancakes and just have
1: fun. All right, listeners, you heard it here. Put your boots on, get out there, get going. Uh Katie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We we truly appreciate your passion and your energy. Uh listeners, follow us on the Facebook She Goes Outdoors Facebook page. You'll see new podcasts popping up in the adventures of of ourselves and you are extended family so uh please post away we love we love living vicariously through your photos um as always subscribe get new updates on our episodes and uh share us with your friends we can't wait to see you outdoors